As James said, we are looking at the last week in the life of Jesus. And it's appropriate that we do this every year and that we spend a week doing this because a full half of John's gospel is dedicated to the last week in the life of Jesus. And almost a third of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are also devoted to the last week in the life of Jesus. So it's an important week for them. So it's an important week for us. We're going to begin reading in verse 28. And we're actually going to read through the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he, Jesus, drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these stones were silent, or if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would be kind to us. That you would answer our prayers so that we can believe and know things that perhaps we have never known or believed before. Lead us further up and lead us further into your grace. Through Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Kids are great. I love seeing them on Sunday. I heard a great story about a little girl in a drawing class recently. The girl was six and the teacher asked her, what are you drawing? And the girl said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, but nobody knows what God looks like. To which the girl said, well, they will in a minute. 
The writer of this gospel, Luke, may have actually been an artist or a painter himself according to some early traditions. He doesn't paint us a picture, but he does paint us a picture with words. He draws us three pictures of Jesus in these three sections. And we are told in the New Testament that we can actually know what God looks like because we have seen the Son. If you look in Hebrews 1, we are told that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact imprint. In Colossians 1, we are told that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And how could we forget when Jesus looked at Philip and he says, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You want to know what God looks like? We need to take a look at Jesus. You want to know what Jesus is like? And not some caricature, not some speculation about who he was. We take a look at the gospel accounts. We have four of them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one of them is like a different camera angle focusing on the same story, highlighting special interest, and pointing out certain details. Last year, James preached on Palm Sunday from the book of Mark. The year before, I preached out of Matthew, so I figured this year we'd do Luke. Perhaps next year we'll do John, and then we'll just repeat all four of them because half of you will move out of the city in four years, and the other half won't remember what we said. So we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke this morning, and what I want us to do is to look at these three pictures in Luke, and I want to call your attention to some details that only Luke includes. So the first section we want to look at is verse 28 through 40. And the first picture that Luke draws attention to of Jesus is this. Jesus is the king of creation. You see, in verse 40, Luke is the only gospel writer to include what Jesus said to the Pharisees. When all the crowds are worshiping Jesus, when they're all rejoicing that he is the long-awaited Messiah, the Pharisees look at Jesus and they say, you need to rebuke your followers, you need to tell them to be quiet. And what does Jesus say? He says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You see, we can say a lot of things about Jesus. He was humble. He was compassionate, he was tender, he was contrite, but he was not modest. You see, he accepts their praise because he deserves their praise. And towards the end of his ministry, he accepts more and more the messianic titles. And by his actions and by his words, he is making the people make a decision about his identity. You see, he raises the ante. They say, you should tell your followers to be quiet. They think that you're the Messiah from Genesis 49. They think that you are the long-awaited son of David. You should tell them to be quiet. And Jesus says, I'm not going to tell them to be quiet because what they say is true. And if they don't recognize it, the very stones 
will cry out. Now what does that mean? Is that just poetic hyperbole? Is it just an exaggeration? I don't think so. Because if you go back in the Old Testament in places like Psalm 96 or Isaiah 55 says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Is Luke just being poetic in 1940? I don't think so. You see, most of the time when we think about salvation, we only think about it in individual or personal terms. We only think about Jesus providing inner peace for me. We only think about Jesus saving me from my sins and enabling me to go to heaven for all of eternity. Now, all of those things are true about salvation, but salvation is more than individually. Salvation is also cosmic. You see, when we rebelled in the garden, everything fell. Not just individuals, but also the creation. When sin entered the world, it affected everything. Psychologically, physically, spiritually, mentally, everything in the world is breaking down because of the fall. Well, how so? Let me give you one example. Whenever we use anything in creation for something that it was not made, it leads to disintegration. If you hammer a nail with a watch, it breaks. If you use your iron as a phone, it will burn you. If you violate an object's purpose, it breaks down or it breaks you. You see, the watch wasn't made to hammer a nail and an iron wasn't made for your face. (laughs) We were created by God for God's purposes. And when we turn away from Him, everything in creation eventually falls apart. Nothing is the way it was made to be, including the trees and the stones. And Isaiah tells us that when the King comes... Everything becomes what it was made to be. You know, there's a perfect illustration of this in this story in verse 30. We are told that Jesus asked for a colt on which no one has ever sat. Now, why? He does this to emphasize his holiness that he set apart. But I know not all of you are from the country, but I am. So let me help you out. So if you go to hop on the colt of a donkey that's never been written before, what happens? It jumps and it bucks. Why? Because the animal has fear. And it's amazing that when Jesus comes to the colt, something different happens. You see, one commentator put it this way. In the midst of this excited crowd... An unbroken animal remains calm under the hands of the one who also calmed the sea. You see, George Whitfield, that famous preacher that preached in the First Great Awakening, he used to say, do you know when you get near animals while they bark at you and growl at you and scream at you and then run away? Because they know that you have a quarrel with their master. 
you see back in the garden, we had a different relationship with animals. We had no quarrel. We named them. They were made for us. But now, animals are afraid. But when the king of creation comes and he gets on that animal, there is no longer any fear. Even the very creation is healed. Salvation is cosmic. When the king of creation comes, the world and everything in it is healed. His first coming is a foreshadowing of his second coming. What Jesus, what James, not Jesus, what James pointed out earlier in the service, Jesus through James in his word, but that even the palm branches will be waved at the second return of Christ. This is not just an Old Testament idea. Listen to Romans chapter 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You see, when Jesus comes back, everything in creation will burst forth in beauty. It's like if you take a flower seed and you put it in potted soil and then you put it in the dark, nothing happens. But if you take it out and you bring it into the radiance of the sun, then beauty erupts. So when the king comes, creation responds. So the first picture that Luke paints for us is that Jesus is the king of creation. He comes with authority, and when he does, he heals the entire world. The second picture that Luke gives us is in verse 41 through 44. And the picture is this. Jesus is not only king of creation, but Jesus is also king of the city. You see, the gospel of Luke really can be divided into two sections. And the second half begins in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 verse 51. He told his disciples he had set his face towards what? Towards Jerusalem. And so Jesus, in this last week of his life, he's left Jericho. He has traveled 13 miles, and now he asked for this donkey. And so he rides on the colt of this donkey, and as he comes over the hill, and as he sees the cityscape of Jerusalem, as he sees the beautiful temple, what happens? He begins to weep. This is one of the most remarkable and moving pictures in Scripture for me. You see, it's awkward because the people are rejoicing. Hosanna! And then all of a sudden the crowd goes quiet because the Messiah is weeping. And the Greek word there, it's not a pretty cry. He is sobbing in anguish. 
And can't you just imagine that the Roman soldiers are being drawn to this commotion that the Jewish king is coming. And as the Roman soldiers come around and they see this Jewish revolutionary, a poor carpenter on the back of a donkey weeping, do you think they almost didn't even laugh at the sight of this? Why does Luke include this detail? Only Luke includes verses 41 through 44. Why? Luke is emphasizing to the early readers and to us that our king comes, but our king comes with gentleness. Our king comes loving. The king weeps for the people in Jerusalem. Why? Because for centuries... Jerusalem was the city of David. It was the city where prophets came. It was the city where sacrifices were made for the atonement of sins at the temple. This was the city of the covenant people of God where the gospel had been preached for centuries and as he stared at this city and as the gospel itself was about to go into it, they did not have eyes to see and they did not have minds to believe and they were rejecting the very one that had been prophesied to them for centuries and centuries and so Jesus wept. Matthew, when talking about Jesus, actually said this. Jesus said this in Matthew 23. Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus is pictured as a weeping mother for his beloved children. Now I bet a lot of you who are parents knows what this feels like to some degree to hurt for your children. I experienced the reality of this very young. When I was 23, I was on a trip with a group of teenagers when a 13-year-old stopped breathing because of an unknown medical condition. We did CPR and rushed him to the hospital in the ambulance and he didn't make it and I was in the waiting room with the parents when the doctor came in and told them that their son was dead. And that mother and father wept like every mother and father should that love their children. And do you see why this is so remarkable and moving of a story to me? Because we are told that Jesus weeps over us like a mother would weep over her dead son. Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem because he knows that in A.D. 70, the Roman general Titus is going to come and burn that city to the ground. You see, the illustration is again the cult of the donkey. Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9 that when the king comes, he comes riding on a donkey because he's gentle, because he's loving like a mother over her son. You see, Jesus rides into the city because he's a king, 
But Jesus rides into the city on a donkey because he's loving. His transportation reveals his purpose. If you're a king and you ride into battle on a donkey, you are going to be slaughtered. Jesus knows this. He rides into the city because he knows he's going to be slaughtered and he is willing to lay down his life for this city. You see, this is a gentle king. He doesn't come to kill his enemies. He comes to die for his enemies. He doesn't come to oppress, but to win those who oppose him. What does this king of the city coming with gentleness mean for us? It means this. What is true of Jerusalem is true of the world, and even more so is true of the church. You see, in this one picture, we have the whole message of the Bible. The whole tragedy of the world is the tragedy of sin. God made the world perfect. He made it all good. But sin entered the world. And when human beings decided to build their lives on themselves and on anything in creation other than God, then conflict entered the world. You see, that's what caused the conflict. Turning from God has horrible consequences. But it's not just out there in the world. It's in here, in the covenant community, in the church, in me. That there are sins of blindness in my own life. That I cannot recognize Jesus or I'm unwilling to bend the knee before King Jesus. And Jesus says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, O church, O church, O David, O David, how I weep for you, how I'm coming with gentleness, how I wish that you would have eyes to see and hearts that believe and knees that will bend before me. Because when you bend the knee before a gentle king, then healing and restoration and redemption begins. And like the city of Jerusalem, if we don't respond to this gentle king, one day, someday, he is coming back on a war horse and terrible devastation will happen. Friends, Jesus is the king of creation coming with authority. Jesus is also the king of the city and he comes right now with gentleness. But the third picture that Luke gives us is that Jesus is also the king of the temple. Only Luke tells us in Luke 47 that Jesus was teaching in the temple daily. Now these first two pictures, they occurred on the same day, Sunday, immediately after the Jewish Sabbath. This account in the tabernacle in the temple occurred on Monday. But Luke groups them together, I think, because he wants us to see all three pictures of Jesus together. Now, when Luke wrote his gospel, he also intended for us to read the entire thing in one sitting. And if we did, we might recall this detail. The last time that Jesus was at the temple was when he was 12. 
You see, when Jewish boys were 12, very often their parents took them to the temple during the time of Passover to teach them about their holy religion. And so you can just imagine Jesus going with his parents, Mary and Joseph, to the temple for the first time when he's 12. And Joseph, his father, walks him around. Can you imagine walking around the God of creation explaining the temple to Jesus? But this is the temple. This is where we come to meet with God. These are the priests. This is the great high priest who is our mediator. This is the altar where we offer sacrifices for the atonement of our sins. And after Jesus' parents explain it, they leave to go home with the caravan. And then surprise, Jesus is not with them. They rush back in a panic to only find him speaking with the teachers of the law. And they say, what are you doing? And Jesus says, I am going about my father's business. And now he's back at the temple. And what does he call the temple? He says, this temple is my house. My house. He's claiming to be God and he's rearranging the furniture like only an owner can do. What does he do? He comes in, he overturns the tables, he throws out the money changers. Why? Because they're in the court of the Gentiles and that was a place for non-Jews to come and to meet Yahweh, God of the universe. And the Gentiles can't come there to pray and so this upsets Jesus. And not only are they doing this, they are oppressing the poor and so Jesus kicks out the sellers. But he also rids the temple of the sacrifices. And then Luke gives us this detail that for the rest of the week, Jesus is there in the temple courts teaching daily. Don't miss the significance of this detail. You see, how could the people atone for their sins if there were no animals? Jesus was saying, You can atone for your sins, not by these animals, not by their blood, but by my blood. You see, do you really think that the blood of goats can atone for your sins? Don't you realize that all of these animals, all of these sacrifices were pointing forward to my sacrifice, to my blood, Jesus is there standing in the temple daily saying, I am the temple. Tear it down and in three days it will be rebuilt. He is saying, I am the great high priest. I am the ultimate sacrifice that can make you right with God and bring you back into his presence. Now, does that sound barbaric? That there has to be a sacrifice to be back in the presence of God? Not really if you think about it, right? All brokenness creates a debt. And debt requires payment. If you were to come over to my house and break an expensive antique lamp, which I don't have because we have young kids, but if I had an expensive antique lamp and you came over and your kids broke it, either you would have to pay for the lamp Or I could choose to forgive you, but I would have to absorb the cost of the lamp. Now that's a silly example. Now imagine 
if someone has committed a crime against you, a heinous crime, perhaps some of you have been a victim, and if that occurred, what if the perpetrator came to you and just said, hey, I'm sorry, can't you just forgive me? What would you say? I can't. That would be unjust. You see, all forgiveness requires payment. If we know that on a human-to-human interaction, then how much more should we know that between a holy God and sinful human interaction? A debt has been created. But you see, the king of the temple comes. And he's willing to be the sacrifice. How can God reconcile us to himself? How are we able to be in his presence? It is that the king of the temple is offering himself. You see, sin, what causes conflict, is us substituting ourselves for God. But grace, as one preacher said, is Jesus substituting himself for us. That's the journey to grace. That's the journey to the cross. You see, Jesus is the king of creation. He's the king of the city. And he's the king of the temple. Now, most of you are probably familiar with C.S. Lewis. And you may know that during 1952, he had been writing Joy Davidman Gresham for two years. And she would later become his wife. They would only be able to be married for a few years before she would die. Lewis wrote about his experiences and the pain of his death in a grief observed. Lewis, in this book, will talk repeatedly that a picture is not good enough. He wants his wife. After she's dead, no resemblance or no icon is enough to satisfy. In the same way, Lewis will talk about that we need Christ and not something that resembles him. He wrote, My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. You know, the mother who lost her young son that I mentioned earlier, no photograph would be enough. When Lewis lost his beloved joy, no photograph would be enough. And for us, no speculation, no photograph of Jesus is enough. But friends, we have him. We have him through the Holy Spirit. We have him through his word. And one day, someday, the king of creation, the king of the city, and the king of the temple is coming back. And we will behold him. And we will be in his presence forever. Are you ready? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it's easy to have so many false 
ideas of what you are like. We have a tendency to make you in our image instead of realizing that we are made in your image. So Father, thank you that we have true images that shatter our false perceptions. That we have your word and that we have your son. Father, help us to see him today that you are the king of creation with all authority on heaven and in earth. That you are the king of the city that you come to us with gentleness. And that you are the king of the temple. And that you, once and for all, have made a sacrifice for all our sins. And that you have sat down at the right hand of the Father. And you are waiting for him to say, go, to finish it. Father, we pray that we would be ready. We pray that we would have hearts like yours. That we would weep over our city. That we would go out into our city with courage and humility and love and gentleness with the truth of the gospel. Father, we ask for you to do amazing things because you deserve nothing less. And it is through the powerful name of King Jesus we pray. Amen.